Hey guys, welcome to a Light in the Darkness podcast. I'm Carly Robison. I'm a wife, a mother, and a person who's been suffering with severe health challenges for over 10 years. Through that time, I've had successes and failures while trying to maintain a positive attitude. Now I want to share what I've learned with you, hoping to make your hard times a little easier. This podcast is to help those of us facing times of darkness and trial find ways to let the light in. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us on the A Light in the Darkness podcast. Today, I have an awesome guest. He is somebody that I've known for a little while. Um, we used to live in the same neighborhood, and he is just honestly one of the best people that we know out there. Um, his name is Mark Davis. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mark. Yeah, no problem. Oh, I'm excited for these guys to hear your story. Mark is such a fun guy. He actually is also a DJ. And he um, was the DJ for our daughter's wedding and honestly just made it so much fun. So I'll even link, um, if anybody's interested in using him as a DJ, I'll link those in the show notes as well. But today I kind of wanted to have Mark on to talk about um, his journey. So first of all, Mark, why don't you just kind of introduce yourself to us, kind of tell us what you do for a job, um, about your family, that kind of stuff. Sure. Well, I'll start even earlier. So I grew up in Murray, Utah, um, graduated from Murray High School, and we lived in one house till I was about 10 or 11 years old. And then we moved four houses down the street, which <laughs> would seem like that would be an easy move. And it was the hardest move you can imagine because my parents didn't get a moving truck. Well, yeah. <laughs> and so we carried everything four houses down the street, which was totally awesome. And then on the last day of the move, my uncle who owns a moving company showed up with a truck to pick nice. up the freezer. So we could have had a moving truck the whole time. I think my parents were just sadistic. So awesome. um, grew up in Murray and my dad um, from the time I could remember um, was physically impaired with multiple sclerosis. Um, he was diagnosed with MS when my mom was pregnant with me. Oh. And so that's, we'll come back to that, but there's lots of weird parallels with that. Yeah. So um, I, I have dis like vague memories of him walking with a cane or walking with a walker, but almost all of my childhood memories was him either in a wheelchair or in a cart. And he had a, he had a different form of MS than I had. Um, his was a more progressive form and it was more aggressive and it, it didn't have any recovery with it. So he was in a really bad way. My mom was an absolute saint. She took care of him. He, she was his caregiver for over 30 years. Wow. So that was just my normal. My two older brothers are eight and 10 years older than me. And they had a totally different experience growing up than me and my next brother up for me, who's two years older than me, because he was working. My dad was working and life was fairly normal till they were in their teen years. And so mm. they, they had one experience then my, my brother and I, Matt had totally different experience. So um, as you can imagine, my dad had to take a medical, medical retirement and that probably happened when I was six or seven. And so money was always extremely tight. Um, we lived off of his medical uh, disability payment which wasn't a lot. And my mom was amazing and frugal and somehow made the mortgage payment and raised four boys with 
a ridiculously low amount of income. So, um, so it was an interesting time. It was all that I, it was all that I knew. Um, but I would get when like fathers and son activities would happen, it would make me pretty sad because my dad couldn't go to stuff like that. Yeah. And so I'd have to go with a bishop to like a young men's. And that's great that the ward was great and filled in, but you can't fill all the way in yeah. uh, for a dad. So um, another problem with my dad's health was he had, um, we have a family history of depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And he, for whatever reason, was very reluctant to get on medication for that. So here he is with his body deteriorating, and then um, he's not addressing his mental health issues. So he's got a decaying body, um, a mind that is also decaying, and because of that, he essentially completely turned inward. Um, He spoke very, very little. Um, and as I got older, he spoke even less. And so my relationship with him was very much affected by that because like, I can even say to this day, I didn't really know my dad very well because um, I was the most aggressive with trying to get him to talk, but he didn't, he, it was like pulling teeth, no pun intended. <laughs> my husband's dental. a dentist. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, it was like pulling teeth to try to get, have a conversation with him. And I was the most aggressive and I could get him to laugh. So he and I probably spoke the most, but so that's, that's me growing up, um, went on a mission to West Virginia, um, came back and what met my lovely wife, um, up at Utah state we got married and she's fun and I love her. And so life was awesome. We had three kids and a fourth on the way. And I had, I had struggled with depression and anxiety myself, yeah. but I, I was fortunate and wasn't as reluctant as my dad was <laughs> to treat it. So I was able to treat it with medication. Um, but I was ironically DJing one day and I'm never late to my events and I was having a hard time finding the place. And I was about to be late for an event for a lady who refers me out all the time for weddings. So it was extra stressful. And I kind of had a freak out and went about it, had my event, came home. And the next morning when I woke up, the vision in my right eye was about 50%. It looked like if you took Vaseline and smeared it on your glass lens, that's yeah. what my vision looked like. And I called... Um, a friend of mine who's an optometrist, and he said, yeah, have things been stressful for you lately? He's like, I was like, yeah, he's like, that, that's pretty common. That can happen if you're having high stress and not enough sleep. You know, get really good sleep tonight, and if it's still like that in the morning, definitely give me a call back. So I did what the doctor ordered and um, got good sleep, went to bed early, and woke up the next morning, and it was three-quarters of my field of vision that was blurred like that. And I was like, okay, this isn't normal. This is really bad. Not, not thinking MS at all because my parents had been told from the get go that it was not hereditary and there was no additional risk for their kids. So in reality, that was, you know, 40 years (laughs) prior um, when he was first diagnosed. And so um, they found out that, you know, there is a hereditary link. You have double the risk of getting MS if your parent um, had MS. 
And it's still a really low risk because the general population has a 0.04% chance of getting MS and offspring of someone with MS has a 0.08. So still less than 1%, um, but I was the lucky winner and I, I got it. So anyway, um, went to my regular doctor. Um, I said, this is what's going on. He's like, okay, we need to get a CAT scan. We'll get that scheduled for you. And I said, so just level with me. What, what could this be? And he said, it can either be an eye stroke, a regular stroke, a brain tumor or MS. And he said, of those, I would be hoping for MS. And I was like, oh my gosh, my life's over. <laughs> because I knew what MS looked like. It looked like a dad in his wheelchair and, you know, that ultimately couldn't feed himself. My mom had to literally feed him. And that's what MS was. And so literally when I went and got the, the CAT scan, got all the readings and got that formal diagnosis that I had MS, my, my life was over. My life was over. I was like, okay, so this is, and it was literally my worst fear in life. My worst fear isn't dying. My worst fear is being trapped in my body like my dad was. Yeah. And he had a saying, he said, there are worse things in, in life than death. And that was referring to his situation. So that's my perspective is, okay, so I'm getting this thing that my dad said is worse than death. Awesome. And I was mad. I wasn't like, you talk about the stages of grief and all that. I went straight to mad. I wasn't in denial. I thought I had it. I did have it. And I came out swinging. I was so mad. Yeah. And like mad in a, I already struggle with mental health issues, but I was angry in a way I had never been in my life and, and becoming really bitter really fast. And as much as I love my parents, they were both um, fairly negative people. And I always swore I wouldn't be like that. I wouldn't let um, bitterness or negativity overtake my life. And it was about to. And I went to bed that night just furious and not blaming God, but like, seriously, of all the things you can do to me, you just gave me my worst fear in life. Like, <laughs> you got to throw me a bone. This is not me praying graciously. I'm mad. I'm mad. Not saying a prayer. And I fall asleep. And here's where the miracle comes. It's not in my treatment. And it's not in where I am right now. The miracle came that night because I went to bed in such a bad place that I was pretty sure I was going to go down the path that my dad did, turn inward, stop talking, and just wait to die. Mm -hmm. And when I woke up that next morning, all of that had been taken from me. And it wasn't because I prayed to have it taken from me. I didn't. I think Heavenly Father understands our breaking point, and he understands where our strength ends. And he knew that I was going into an area that was beyond my ability to, to carry the load. I just couldn't do it. And so he just took that from me. And he didn't instantly heal me. I still have MS. Um, I even remember speaking about this experience with your husband, with Brandon. And before I was diagnosed and he knew what was going on and he told me about how he was in the shower just praying like, not this one, just 
just take this from Mark, he, just not this one. And then I think he, I don't know if he was corrected or I think he kind of got the impression like, no, this isn't going to be taken from him, but he's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And so I woke up that next morning and all that bitterness, all those angry feelings, all those th- feelings of I'm going down the same path my dad, dad did mentally and emotionally, that was all taken from me. And that's never been back. And that's been eight years. I can't even do the math on it, but uh-huh. eight, nine-ish years ago. Um, and it's never been back. And I've definitely struggled still with depression and anxiety, but that hopelessness, that feeling of my life's over has never come back. And because of that, I'm not, I have a relationship with my kids. I have a relationship with my wife and I'm grouchy. I mean, one of the difficult things about MS is it does um, affect your personality. And so my wife and my kids have had to put up with me not being the same person I used to be. And I feel really bad for them for that. That's probably the biggest burden that they've had to deal with is me not being the same person emotionally and mentally that I used to be. So um, I wasn't willing to just leave it at that. Like all of a sudden that had been taken away from me and my fight came back. I'm usually a fighter and I'm really stubborn. And so I got that back and I was just like, uh, I'm not just going to roll over and take this. Like if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down fighting. And so you you do what people do when they're in desperate medical situations. You get online. And I already knew knew what the worst case scenario looked like. I lived with it. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking for like, how can this be better? Like what's changed in the 40 years from when my dad was diagnosed until now? And searched for a couple of months, and then I found out about a procedure called HSCT, and that stands for uh, hemostatic non-ablative stem cell transplant. So essentially what it does is they take your own stem cells from your blood, like they just take blood out like you're donating blood, but they spin off um, the stem cells, they put those on ice, um, they before that they treat you with chemo which in theory cleans up the stem cells so you're not putting dirty stem cells back in and then i went back um the procedure after that i went back a couple of weeks later and got chemo in my body um four doses of that which was i thought i was gonna die it was a really it it was a scary experience because my dad had a similar treatment when i was a little boy like in kindergarten or first grade it was called plasmapheresis and they were on the right track back then, but what they didn't understand is they have to take you to the edge of death, literally. And so because MS is an autoimmune disease, um, the whole premise of HSCT is they need to reboot, reboot your autoimmune system. And so they do that by destroying your autoimmune system with chemo. So they take you literally to the point where you don't have an immune system and you have to be hospitalized for this. Anytime you left, I had to leave my room. I had to wear gloves. I had to wear plastic gown, a cap, and I couldn't touch anything because if I got a cold while I didn't have an immune system, I would have died. And so it was, there's risk associated with the procedure. And 
as I learned about this procedure, I was like, well, that's interesting. Like, I'm going to look into it more. And the only place I could see they were doing it was in Russia. And I was like, well, Russia politically, safety wise, plus, is it like weirdo medicine? Is this real medicine or is this some Russian conspiracy to kill Americans or whatever <laughs> it was? So I didn't feel comfortable going to Russia. I learned later they were doing it in Israel. Okay, some of the safety issues are still there, but I would trust doing it in Israel. And then I finally came upon um, Dr. Burt, Dr. Richard Burt who is out of um, Northwestern Hospital in Chicago. And he had been doing HSCT for over 10 years and had really incredible results with it. So I was like, okay, this is what I need to do. This is awesome. This is a miracle. I'm just going to get this and it'll be all good. So then I had to go. Then the hardest part of my life started. So the hardest part of my life wasn't getting diagnosed with MS or having a dad with MS even. The hardest part of my life was about to begin and that was going through the process of trying to get accepted for this procedure and then trying to figure out how insurance was going to cover or not cover it. So I started down that path and I would literally every day at work at my lunch be calling the clinic in Chicago like okay do you have my application do you have like and dead end dead end wasn't sure I was going to get in finally they called me and said come out come out to Chicago let's do some tests and um I won't try to I'll try to keep the negative out of this because this is a positive <laughs> thing but I, I mean I, I think I'm happy to hear the negative as well just because I think that's a part of everybody's process you can't nobody nobody's 100% happy and 100% <laughs> everything's okay all the time <laughs> The neurologist I had been going to um, had gotten me on this drug. We had tried a couple that didn't work very well and got me on a drug called Tasabri. And it was a great drug for MS. It, it put my MS into remission. And that was great. And the only problem was there's a virus called the JC virus. And I don't remember what it stands for. It's a very common virus. Probably 40% of the population has it. And no big deal unless you happen to be on a immune suppressing drug like Tasabri. And if the longer you're on Tasabri when you have this virus, the chances of getting this condition called PML, which essentially just turns your brain into jelly, literally, like it, it, it will probably kill you. And if it doesn't kill you, it literally turns the structure of your brain into mush. And so the longer I was on that, the higher the chance of me getting PML was. So it couldn't be a long-term solution. Wow. That's when I found HSCT, went out. Um, I found out that my neurologist, when I told him that I was going out to look into this, he fired me as a patient. He said, you can't, well, I can't, I, you can't be my patient anymore. And he was doing this through his nurse. He wasn't even in the room. Um, wow. And I said, well, can I at least talk to um, the doctor to talk about this? And she's like, yeah, no. But he did say if you ever want to come back and get back on Tysabri, he'll take you back as a patient. And so I didn't just take that at face value. I'm like, okay, there's something dirty and wrong going on here. Yeah. And I couldn't figure, it took me quite a while to figure it out. What I discovered is I looked into, you can go on to um, 
there's government websites that will release how much money a pharmaceutical company is giving a provider. And he had received like $250,000 from this pharmacy or pharmaceutical, which is not enough money that most any doctor would consider doing the wrong thing for that amount of money that doctors make a lot of money. And so he's like, that $250,000 didn't make him beholden to the Tysabri people, like what was it? And it wasn't until I got some of my invoices back from, I'd have to go get an infusion once a month for this Tysabri. And I was looking, after he fired me as a patient, I was looking at my final invoice and it was all covered through insurance, but I looked and it was $350 a visit, which doesn't sound like an impossible amount of money, but that's $350 12 times a year. And then you multiply that. I, I estimated his patients to be around 2,000 patients that he saw. He's, he's the leading MS doctor in the Intermountain region. And he was making somewhere between seven and $9 million a year from those office visits. And that adds up. You can do the math on it. If you take 350 times 12 times a couple thousand patients, he's making literally millions of dollars a year. And that's why he fired me uh, as a patient, because that's bad for business. Mm -hmm. And so I guess one of the takeaways I, I would like everyone to have, and I don't want it to be a cynical one, your health care is your responsibility. And your health care, no one cares more about your health care than you. Yeah. And don't just take a doctor's, and I'm not anti-doctor, but don't just take the first answer you get and don't take kind of no for an answer. You are, you are in charge of your own healthcare. And if you feel strongly about something and your doctor is not cooperating with you about it and can't really give a, a good explanation on why, um, question that and explore it. Because in this case, it was corruption. It, it was, I mean, he had um, a financial interest in this. And if they get this procedure out for everyone with MS, oh, guess what? they don't need MS drugs any, anymore. Yeah. And they don't really need to go see a neurologist anymore. So it's really bad for business, really bad for business. So that's my negative portion. We'll get back to the positive. So he, <laughs> so went out, um, the reason I brought up that doctor is because when I went out, the Dr. Richard Burt, who is a miracle worker, he said, yeah, you don't, you don't, uh, qualify for the clinical trial trial because you haven't had two exacerbations or two attacks in the last 12 months. And I, I was literally, it was on the tip of my tongue. I was about to argue with him like, no, I've had three and I've had had um, IV transfusions of steroids to stop the attacks three different times in the last 12 months. And I was right about it, ready to go into it. And he said, but I've decided to accept you on a compassionate base, basis for the treatment. Wow. And so I'm in. So that's awesome. So I'm in, I get dates. And now the next step, which is actually the hardest part, yeah. how am I going to pay for this? So I go down the insurance route and I'll, I'll say the name. That's, that's okay. If, if you work for this company, then that's okay. But um, Select Health, um, IHC, I had insurance with them and I fought for the better part of a year to try to get them to agree to cover this treatment. And they, 
I went through appeal after appeal that I would get them any paperwork, any backup that they needed. And sometimes it would get lost or sometimes they would need it duplicate. And this went on for like eight or nine months. And it was me on my lunch break calling, arguing with the insurance company, getting them documents I'd already gotten them over and over and over for eight months. Mm -hmm. And so the, there are four appeals that you can do. On the fourth appeal, they had a conference call and the, the gentleman that they chose to be in charge of it, who wasn't even a neurologist, said, yeah, no, I know who your neurologist is. He's a good guy. And yeah, we don't feel good about this treatment. We, we think there's too much risk with it. Mm -hmm. And I argued till I was blue in the face and they had made their decision. So I'm back at square one again, like, okay, great. So there's something out there treatment-wise I can do. And it costs $150,000 and I don't have that. And so I, after that last call, I was very um, discouraged. And I went and talked to my wife and I was like, well, we just can't do it because I can't put my family in a financial ruin on something that may or may not work. Yeah. And I had kind of decided I wasn't going to do it. And my smart, lovely, intelligent, beautiful wife, Bryn, was like, what are you talking about? Like, it's only money. And what if your dad could have had a treatment that cost a lot of money that would have given you a, a regular relationship with him as a child? Would you have wanted him to do that? And then would you have been okay being poor as a consequence? And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course. And then I'm like, okay, I'm not only being an idiot, but I'm kind of being selfish, even though that's not my motive. Like yeah. this, it's not just how this affects me, but what could this mean to my family if it works? Yeah. And so then I was like, okay, just got to do it. And we lived in the same neighborhood as, as you at the time. And we started doing fundraising because insurance wasn't going to cover it. And people are good. That's, that's another takeaway from all of this. People are good. And the world is screwed up right now. And our country screwed up right now. And people are still good. The, those motives, those evil plans are still out there. And they're not going anywhere. But the majority of people are good people who care about people. And so that's something you have to remember when you're going through trials is people are good. And I saw that in my neighborhood and in my ward. And the generosity that people showed was unbelievable. And my next door neighbor, Ruth Ann Hook, decided she was going to do um, cinnamon roll fundraising. And she paid for all of the cinnamon roll materials, did all of the work, prepared them all, and then, and then the ward stepped up. And she earned over $4,000 oh toward my treatment, and she did not sell $4,000 worth of cinnamon rolls. Yeah. So people were paying $100 for six cinnamon rolls or $200 for six cinnamon rolls, and... I was thinking when she was starting out, like, oh, that's cool. She, she'll raise like 500 bucks. That's so kind of her. And so when it came in that she had raised over $4,000, not only was I astounded at Ruthann's generosity, 
to even think to do it. But the generosity of those people, they weren't buying cinnamon rolls. They were showing love. And so there was $4,000. And then my work uh, team did a bake sale. Unfortunately, I work at a company that has about, at the time, about 2,200 employees at the office. And they did a bake sale that raised another, I think, three to $4,000. Same type of idea, just from people being generous. And I was at that bake sale helping man it. And a guy came up. I don't think he knew that I was the one that was the beneficiary of it. And he said, hey, I'm not interested in any of the baked goods. Can I just make a donation? I was like, absolutely. And he was probably 25 years old. Wow. And he said, I'd like to make a donation. And he handed me a $100 bill. And he's like, can you make sure that gets to the fundraiser? And I was like, yeah. yeah. This 25-year-old kid, just because he's a good person, because people are good, gives me $100. That really touched me. And the story, if, if I try to name all of the stories of kindness, I'll leave someone out. So I'm not going to even try. I'll mention a couple others, though. Um, uh, Susan Gray, now Susan Ellemeyer in our ward. Um, she, she took it upon herself, like, okay, we're going to figure out a way to raise f funds. And she just came in and kind of took over. And that's actually what I needed. Um, when you're going through something like this, the last thing you need is to worry about like, okay, I need to organize a fundraiser. It's it comes across as self-serving. Uh, I wasn't comfortable like, hey, I want to raise funds for me. So let, what are we going to do? And she came in and just came up with ideas. And her daughter, this is the one that might get me. Um, she, this is the one that's getting me. She loved American Girls dolls. And her daughter, I think she, Isla, Isla, It's Isley. Isley, I was close. <laughs> um, Isley was probably eight at the time. And she told her mom, Susan, she said, I want to donate my American Girl doll to help Mark. So kids are good too. Yeah. And obviously that touched me. And on and on and on. I had a friend from my mission that Christmas. And I was at a Christmas party when he called. He said, hey, we're going to be out in your neighborhood. Um, and we want to drop something by. And he was a, a friend from the mission. We'd hung out a little bit after the mission. But I hadn't seen or talked to him in years. And he'd heard about my plight on Facebook. And I'll call him out. His name's Tom Hazelton. And he's a very, very successful home builder. He owns I went a company, to high school with him. You know Tom. <laughs> yep. <laughs> he owns a company called Silverhawk Company, Silverhawk Construction. Yeah. And while I was at my party, I said, well, I'm at a party, but I'd really, I don't want to, maybe I can come back and say hi to you real quick. And he's like, don't worry about it. Just I'll, I'll leave something under your front door mat. And I was like, okay, that's really nice. Thank you. And I thought he was dropping off a Christmas card or something like that. And I get there and there's an envelope and a check for $5,000 for a guy who I was friends with on the mission and hung, hung about a little, a little bit after, but he wanted to try to make a difference. And he did. And it's not the amount. Mm -hmm. It's not that it was a big chunk of money. It's the, 
he heard about my situation and he cared about me and he wanted to help even though we hadn't talked in years. And I was floored by that. Um, and as the fundraising went on, there was someone I think made a seven or $8,000 donation on, um, we didn't use GoFundMe, we used uh, Help Hope Live. So anyway, we, we got into the fundraising let for less than a month and raised almost twenty thousand dollars wow. and i was like oh my gosh like we're putting a dent into this so like i can get a home equity line and we can pay for the rest of it and we can manage those payment payments and this is really going to happen it's going to be okay and i was totally thrilled like this is real because when i first got accepted into the treatment it's like it wasn't real. It didn't seem like it was really going to happen. Now it seems like it's really going to happen. And it was the new year, and we had had open enrollment in the fall. And, of course, I'm not going to stay with Select Health, who wouldn't help me. And so I selected a new insurance company, Cigna. And I thought, eh, it's worth a shot. I got, I got shot down before. I'm probably going to get shot down again. And I got all the information in, and as soon as I had everything over to them, it took about two weeks, and I got this phone call, and they said, hey, this is so-and-so with Cigna. Um, I'm a transplant coordinator. Um, I want to introduce myself. I'm going to be your transplant coordinator um, through the process. And I was like, well, what does that even mean? <laughs> and she said, well, you, you, you were accepted for HSCT, right? I was like, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to be your coordinator to kind of help you through that whole process. He's like, but how are you going to help me? And she's like, well, you've been approved for coverage through Cigna, and I'm going to help you with the whole process of submitting everything you need to through insurance and making sure you get reimbursed for everything accordingly. And I was like, whoa, whoa, wait are you telling me I'm approved? Oh yeah, didn't you get a letter already? I was like, no. She's like, yeah, you've been approved. I was like, oh my gosh. So what does that mean? And she said, well, the insurance will cover 100% of your procedure. And I was like, are you kidding me? And she said, no. And she said, part of the transplant program is we'll also help to pay for Hotels while you're out, you know, while caregiver, caregivers are there with you, will help pay for the flights, will help pay for all of this. And I was completely floored. So I went from being rejected, can't get it, this thing that I want that's so far out there, to getting accepted, to, oh my gosh, it's looking like there might be a way, to all of a sudden it's paid for. Yeah. Um, so I went through this eighth month period of hell and thought it was all for naught. And then Cigna, within two weeks of them having everything they needed, is like, nope, we're doing this. Mm -hmm. And it's, a it's still a clinical trial. It's still not accepted by the FDA. And that's probably because pharmaceutical companies don't want that to happen, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden now it's covered. And the funds that I had raised helped me to, for the next five years they wanted me to come back and 
um, do follow-up treatments. And because it's out of network, it was really expensive and they want to do it on their um, MRI uh, machines. So I had to travel for several years to go back there. Hotels in Chicago are expensive. And I was able to use those funds that were raised for me to go back for all of my follow-up. Wow. So all of that was covered. Yeah. And now to what did it do? So leading up to it, I had lots of symptoms. Um, I would get numbness in my hands and I would get spasms in my thigh. Like you could look at my thigh and it would just be vibrating uncontrollably. And all the symptoms had piled up and piled up and piled up. And I'd had it for long enough that it wasn't that they weren't affecting me. It was just my new normal. My shoulders were always just rock, rock stiff. Um, and I had, fortunately, I only had one lesion on my spine on, on one vertebrae. And that made it so that I would get pain that would go from that vertebrae, travel up to the base of my skull and down my right arm. And it was just a constant pain. It hurt all the time. and my vision recovered some, but it never recovered all the way. Unfortunately, to this data, it's not all the way back. And my memory had become a real, real issue. And my short-term memory was so bad that I was not keeping up at work. And I was getting to the point where I was gonna lose my job because I was in sales and I wasn't meeting my goals and all of that. And so here's God jumping in again. So I actually had, it, I saw the writing on the wall and it looked like it wasn't going to be good. So I started looking for other jobs and I had another offer also in sales. And the first thing they told me when I was diagnosed with MS is, you know, you probably want to avoid all stress you can. So if you have a stressful job, you probably need to change that. And anything that causes stress in your life, you need to try to find a way to eliminate it. And I was like, oh, okay, life isn't stressful. That'll be easy. <laughs> and so I realized that that job wasn't going to work out, but the replacement job that I was going to take was another sales job. It was going to have its own stress and it was probably going to be the same outcome. And I went to my boss and I'll call out my company because they are so wonderful. Um, CHG Healthcare, Comp Health, local Utah company. I, I could go off for an hour about how wonderful they are. Um, I went to basically give notice to my boss and he said, well, would, aren't there any other jobs up on the boards that would work for you that are lower stress? And I was like, no, I've been looking for weeks and there's nothing that meets the criteria. I looked, I looked earlier today and there's nothing still. That's why I'm here. He said, humor me. Let's look one more time. And I know that he was prompted to do that yeah. and we went and there was a job in the housing department that wasn't there that morning it's like what about this housing job I'm like, there's no there's no jobs in housing it's like yeah there is look it's right here and I'm like it wasn't there this morning and he's like it's here now and I had to get my answer back to this other job offer and I was like well yeah that's perfect that's exactly what I need but like I need this to happen super fast and so I applied for the job and I had to give, I was putting off my prospective employer for like over a week, like, oh, okay, I'll give you a final answer. Just have some things I need to work on. And it finally came down to, I had to 
it was Fisher, Fisher Cook paying on the job. And I went to the prospective manager at my current job in the housing department, his name's Eric. And I've been at that job now for almost six years. And it was exactly what I needed. It was, I needed to be with CHG because they are so wonderful. And so I had a job and because I had a job, that means I still had my insurance. Mm -hmm. So I got the procedure done and what changed? So my numbness in my fingers is gone. The pain that I would get in my shoulders from the, my skull to down my right arm, I don't have that anymore. I still get tension in my shoulders, but I had that before I had MS as well. So that pain was gone. I, in the morning, there was, I had um, pain in the soles of my feet. So it hurt to take steps. And I probably look like an old guy walking in from the parking garage because I had to step very gingerly because my feet really hurt badly. That's 100% gone. And the memory, um, I still have memory issues, but it's 80% better than it was. Um, I was going down a path where I wouldn't have been able to work. And in fact, Brynn and I had discussed potentially me just getting on medical disability because it was going that direction. So that's been six years. Well, mm -hmm. it's been almost eight years since the procedure and still working, never had to take any time off. Um, I did have to take time off to get the procedure, but I'd never had to take time off because I wasn't well enough to work. Yeah. And on and on and on. I have a list of 20 or so symptoms that either got substantially better or are completely gone. And the things I'm left with, I do still have some memory issues. Um, but I used to, it used to be that I would be in a conversation, I'd be mid-sentence, and I'd have to just say, I don't remember what I was saying. Sorry. And it, there was no chance of me recalling it. And I still get my stupors every once in a while, but it's 80% better. And the pain is better. And my vision, I, was, I got faked out by my vision because I was in the hospital. And I learned in the hospital that I had good and bad days. And I would have a good vision day every 30 or 40 days. So I was in the hospital bed, got the treatment. And I'd been praying like, come on, vision, get better. And I was in there. And I would close my good eye and look at the dry erase board up in front of me and see how far down I could read. And one day I got out of the shower and did my test, sat down, and I could read all the way down the board. I'm like, my vision's fixed. And, and unfortunately, that ended up being my one in 30 or 40 days that my vision was good. Yeah. Um, but it didn't get worse. Yeah. And so I'm in remission. I've been in remission for that whole time. And for the first two years, stuff kept getting better and better, like symptoms that hadn't been fixed got fixed a year into it. And it really is a miracle procedure. And I was helped by God the whole way. And he was looking out for me the whole time. And even though he gave me the, the worst trial I could imagine. It was my literally my worst nightmare. Yeah. Um, he helped me get through it in all of those ways. But the biggest is not financial. It's not getting the treatment. Um, the biggest is that he removed that bitterness and that negativity that was consuming me. And it's 
never been back since. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing this story. It's such a powerful one filled with with hope and and I just I love hearing it every time I hear you talk about this. So thank you so much. Um, I do have a few questions. First of sure. all, is there anything that has gotten worse since you've had the treatment? I don't really know a lot of like what remission. So mean. remission <laughs> means just like you hear cancer being in uh -huh. remission. When cancer is in remission, it's no longer active. Okay. And that's where my MS is. So there is some damage that was done to my um, nerves and to my brain that can't be repaired. And so that damage that was done, that's still there, but there's no new activity. So the damage that didn't get better, that's permanent, is still there but there is literally no new damage. So when I would go every year for my MRI um, CAT scan, um, they would compare this year's brain to last year's brain. And for the first couple of years, they would show me like, okay, here's a lesion where there was activity and this is what your brain looks like now. So parts of my brain were actually healing and same thing with the lesion on my spine. Yeah. They were watching it actually heal for up to two years. Wow. And for the next few years after that, going back, they would just show, okay, there's no new activity. Here's your brain. It looks the same this year as it did last year, maybe a little bit better. And so there's no new damage being done. Wow. That's amazing. So if somebody is listening to this podcast and they themselves have been given an MS diagnosis or they have a family member or loved one, what kind of advice would you give to them? Sure. And I mean, here, here's the thing that really surprised me is my same neighbor, Ruth Ann Hook, she has a sister that's in public relations and she actually had a news crew there the day I flew home. Mm -hmm. And so I was shaved bald because my hair had all fallen out and I was just puffy from all the steroids and all the drugs I'd been on and looked horrible. And the only thing I wanted to do was go see my family. And so when I got home, they, they asked for permission to do this, but they had a news crew there filming me getting to see my kids because it had been almost a month since I'd seen them yeah. and got to be reunited with them. And I had one of those stupors just now. <laughs> I don't remember where I was going with that. So we were talking about if you were going to talk to somebody that has yeah. been given an MS diagnosis. Um, so don't give up, obviously. Yeah. I'm sure everyone that goes through any kind of medical or any trial, that's going to be one of the takeaways is don't give up. Um, but be creative. Just don't accept everything you're being told. Like if all you're being told is negative, it can't all be negative and it might not be as good as you want it to be, but there's a good chance it's not as bad as everyone's telling you it is, or it's not as bad as you're thinking it is. In my case, it was way, way, way better. When my dad was diagnosed, there was nothing they could do. And he became a, a handicapped guy in a wheelchair that had to be fed. Um, it got a lot better. And so, keep your fight. Don't give up. So there might not be an HSCT miracle treatment out there for you, but there's something out there for you. So keeping hope, but in my case, it's probably just my personality, but I had to keep my fight. Like I'm a stubborn guy. Um, 
I'm a fighter. And I think someone was trying to take that out of me and it, it wasn't allowed to be stripped from me, but don't give up, don't give up fight and don't just accept the status quo. Yeah. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing. So if somebody um, wants to get in contact with you, is there a way that they can do that? Sure. If anyone has questions about the treatment that I went through or just wants to talk or ask me any questions. That's one of the surprising things is that's where I was going with the, talking about the news crew is <laughs> I took it up. Like I really wanted to share my message with lots of people. So getting that news story was awesome because lots of people reach out to me and I had probably 30 people reach out and be like, okay, tell me about this procedure. I've got MS or my family members got MS and I would tell them about it, what, what it was. And to my knowledge, only one of those 30 people I talked to went and got the procedure. And quite honestly, it's probably because they went and talked to their neurologist and they're like, no, that's too dangerous. Don't do that. And so whether that just be a, a thing of convention or if they're corrupt, my, like my neurologist was, um, not many people have chosen to follow up and get it. And I don't think it is for everyone because with this disease, if you're too far along with it, A, HSCT may or may not work for you. And B, if you're far enough along, it may kill, it might kill you. Wow. And so it, while it's not for everybody, um, it's for a lot of people. I guess that's another thing I want to share is my, my MS medication was costing my insurance and my company $70,000 a year. Wow. Extremely expensive. And that's why I could not wrap my mind around Select Health not approving this because if it works, no more $70,000 a year medicine. Yeah. So I'm not on any MS medication. And my company, CHG, that approved it and Cigna that approved it, they saved. So far, they've saved, I think I just calculated it because we just had um, open enrollment. They've saved like $240,000 so far. And on and on and on, as long as I work there, that's $70,000 a year in medication that they're not paying for. So it was not only the right thing to do to approve it, yeah. it was financially the responsible thing. And uh, quite honestly, it's still not FDA approved. And it's, it's simply because there's too much money involved and there's too much bad information out there. But it's it's absolutely changed my life. So if you have any questions and you want to talk to me about it, uh, email is probably going to be, be the best way. So my DJ, I'm a mobile DJ and my DJ email address is spindoctormd at hotmail.com. So that's spin, S-P-I-N, doctor spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R-M-D. That stands for Mark Davis or mobile DJ at hotmail.com. And I'm an old guy, so I still have a hotmail. <laughs> Um, account from when I opened the company 22 years ago. I love it. You know, I do feel like there's one more thing that I kind of want to add. Um, this is definitely a spiritually based podcast. And you've talked a lot about the role that God played in your healing and in your journey and in your finding answers. And um, as somebody that has been faced with their own difficult health challenges, um, this is something that I've gained such a powerful testimony about because 
there are so many treatments out there for you know any ailment that you have um you could rub some spit on it you can use some oils you know all the way up to stem cell and different things like that there's such a wide array of uh, options for people but the best part about having a relationship with our heavenly father and about being able to hear him through the holy ghost is that we can get that inspiration for ourselves and i i honestly think that that you were guided just like you talked about to find this therapy because it was something that that you needed in your life and it was something that was going to work for you and i love that i love that we can we can pray and have that um knowledge of you know is this something that that a path that i should go down is this something that um I should look into or, you know, kind of give, be given direction for our lives. And I think that's one of the, the best parts about having a relationship um, with our father in heaven. And so I love to see how that played out in your life. And I love to see how, honestly, it's a common thing um, in so many of my guests and also my own life, just kind of having that, that personal revelation to know which things um, I should definitely be trying and which things that, you know, through the spirit, I've just been given that guidance. So thank you so much for sharing your story. I love it. And I love the hope. And I honestly, I hope that, that somebody's listening, that their heart is burning right now and that they feel like, do you know what? This is an answer to my prayers because I definitely believe that, that God can work um, through lots of different ways. So thank you so much for being here, Mark. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, and thank you all for listening to my A Light in the Darkness podcast. Um, every week, I'm just blown away by the stories that my guests share. And I just am, am humbled and honored to be able to kind of provide um, this platform that, that a lot of people can listen to it and a lot of people can get help with their specific problems and as always if you ever have any questions or um, want to contact me you can always reach me on my social media at a light in the darkness and also on my own website and it's carly robison.org and i will definitely link all of mark's information in the show notes so i hope you all have a wonderful week and can find a light in your own personal darkness and we'll see you here next wednesday bye I want to give a special thanks to my son Carter for recording and writing our intro and outro music for this podcast. If you want to hear more of his music, you can find him on Instagram at CarterGuitar456. 